Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Many people alarmed about climate disruption thought America's coastal cities had a decade or two before they had to really get serious about the gradual threat of sea level rise. Then came Hurricane Sandy. Seas that are rising, warming, and expanding combined with other factors to deliver an unprecedented knockout punch. California has an estimated $100 billion in property at risk from sea level rise, much of it in the Bay Area. Schools, homes, highways, hazardous waste facilities, power plants, the on-ramp to the fancy new Bay Bridge are all at risk from floods in coming years. Over the next hour, we'll discuss what a Sandy-like event might look like in the Bay Area and what is being done to prepare for such a catastrophe. With our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us three people responsible for helping to build resilient communities that could bounce back after a big hit. Melanie Nutter is director of San Francisco Department of the Environment. Ezra Rapport is the executive director at the Association of Bay Area Governments. And Zach Wasserman is chair of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome. Welcome, all of you. Uh, Melanie Nutter, let's begin with you. When you were watching the television and seeing Hurricane Sandy bearing down on the East Coast, what did you think? And what did you think about if something like that were to happen in the Bay Area? Well, frankly, it was terrifying. I mean, to watch what was happening in New York was really terrifying. And for many of us who are here on the West Coast who have family and friends back east, hearing some of the stories about the lines that people had to wait in to get gas, um, the power outages, um, people who were trapped in their cars where there was very severe flooding on the streets. It was really terrifying. Um, so that was, I mean, that was my reaction, I think, similar to a lot of San Franciscans. And of course, being uh, somebody who works for local government, I also thought, what do we need to do here in the Bay Area to ward off the worst effects of climate change? We don't want to see a Sandy in the Bay Area, but who knows if we will. Well, that's the question. Some people think that, the, well, the East Coast, they get hurricanes. That, that can't happen. That's over there. It can't happen here. Any of that thought that, like, well, that's New York. We don't have hurricanes, so won't be as bad here. 
So I think that there was some of that, but we also did have um, some severe weather events last year. The Pineapple Express that came to the Bay Area where we saw um, we saw some rising tides in and rising sea levels in, in the Bay, um, where along our Embarcadero and along our port, you could see the impacts of a, um, a severe weather event in the Bay Area. So for anybody who was a naysayer, I think once we saw that, it, it really brought it home last year. Zach Wasserman, I'd like to ask you the same thing. You saw uh, Sandy, uh, you're a chair of a commission that's re- responsible for governing uh, for the, the water's edge around the Bay Area. Did you think, uh-oh, what did you think when you saw Sandy? Well, I was certainly frightened, as was everybody else, and very concerned. Um, but I will also say there was an element of me, both not so much immediately, uh, but in, in, in the aftermath, uh, that was hopeful because Sandy is a wake-up call. And the problem with uh, adapting to rising sea level is it occurs over such a long period of time. It's not really here now for people. Sandy, to some extent, brought it home. I would certainly not wish that on New York or New Jersey or here. Um, but I think there are some benefits that we can gain from it. So we'll, we'll get into that in sort of Sandy as a lesson and, and as a wake-up call. Uh, as a report, um, you've focused a lot um, on... Uh, seismic risk, and that's often been the biggest risk in the Bay Area, and climate has come up recently. So tell us about when you started to realize that that uh, climate risk was something that you would deal with in your career, not something that your, your successors or uh, future generations would have to deal with. Well, we're preparing a sustainable community strategy um, that will be adopted this year that's supposed to be looking out to 2040. And when we started to get more into the issues of vulnerable areas and vulnerable populations, it became apparent to us that we're going to have to make some significant infrastructure planning before we proceed with that plan. Um, We're going to be adopting a plan knowing that there's a lot of work left to be done, but at least we'll set a schedule forth when we'll hold ourselves accountable for getting the work done. Well, let's talk about uh, those vulnerabilities. As we look around the Bay Area, uh, what are the biggest risks? What communities, what areas are uh, at most at risk? The areas that are most at risk are the ones, obviously, that have the lowest elevation and uh, also the major infrastructure that the Bay Area could see damaged, um, which would affect everybody. Uh, there also is a, a tremendous seismic risk, which is a potential immediate concern and, and affects how sea level rise is dealt with because the liquefaction within the areas of, of uh, levees and things of that uh, hard engineering protection would have to be taken into account. Uh, so um, our, our view is, is that uh, the assessment, the risk assessment that's necessary for the Bay Area is the first order of business, and we have not done a, a, a good one uh, to date. So we don't know. I mean, if you're near the water and, and flat land, you're probably ought to be thinking about this, but it sounds like no comprehensive uh, risk assessment has been done. Is that hear that correctly, Zach Wasserman? Um, I think that's correct, although we're making small progress towards that. Uh, one of the BCDC projects is adapting to rising tides, the ART project, and it has studied the area um, along the Alameda County uh, coastline for the bay, uh, from Albany down to Hayward. And there is a vulnerability assessment. It's on, it's on our website. Um, so we've started that. We think it's going to be, uh, that kind of approach is going to be used in other parts of the bay. 
But the next big step is one that really hasn't been taken, although certainly we've given it thought, and that is what can we do to protect our built environment in the most vulnerable areas and our most vulnerable communities? Melanie Nutter? Um, Well, the California Energy Commission did recently do a study on the Bay Area, and some of what they projected was that we could see um, sea level rise up to 15 inches by 2050 and up to 55 inches by the end of the century. Um, There also were projections saying that we could see increases in temperature in the Bay Area anywhere from 3 to 11 degrees. Um, But as we heard in the last panel, um, that science is constantly changing, and some of the science that's coming out is is potentially conservative. So um, what Ezra said, I think, is exactly true. We as a city don't yet have an agreed-upon risk scenario that we have said, this is the risk scenario that we are accepting of a baseline and where we will start from. So there's certainly many projections out there, um, none of them very positive, and it could be that they're more conservative than what we'll be seeing. Right. Uh, climate scientists are often very conservative, things that often end up uh, more serious than the scientists admit. So what's the holdup? Why isn't why don't we know this is uh, coming up 25 years since uh, climate really came on the national radar? Uh, what's preventing the area from having a, a risk assessment? Is it is it the perception that this is something that's decades away? We got time to plan for this. Is it sort of the time scale? Zach Wasserman? I think there are a couple of factors. Time scale certainly plays into it. But the other factor is that we are a very diverse region uh, with nine counties, 101 cities. I think that's the number. Um, a, a whole range of special districts that are involved. And there is no one dominant player uh, in New York, in Chicago, in some other areas where they have made some significant progress, um, although they don't have the solutions yet. Uh, there is a dominant player, and they can help to organize. Uh, even in San Diego, a, a region we're starting to, to communicate and cooperate with, there's a little bit more dominance. Um, but there's a real problem with coordinating all of the efforts uh, in a regional, cohesive, and coherent way. So when you say dominant player, does that mean there's kind of a climate authority in New York? Uh, there's a new agency that's supposed to kind of uh, get its arms around this? Uh, is that well, well, I'm sure there are some... Uh, city members uh, from other boroughs in New York and and elements in New Jersey who would argue with this, uh, the city of New York itself and the mayor of New York, particularly the current mayor, um, plays a very dominant role. Um, We don't have that, and and, and that's no criticism of any mayor in in office today. So it's an individual, not not a government entity. Okay. Well, it's the two. I mean, we are a more diverse region than almost any similar region in the country. Okay, I think some people in New York might might take issue with that. Diverse in governance, in governance. Okay, so it takes, so centralization, uh, if there's a strong political figure, a strong agency, those regions are further along. And here we're fractured because there's a whole alphabet soup of agencies and political figures that can't agree. Is that? Well, it's not that they can't agree, but but they have different issues and different perceptions. And and I want to be very clear. I'm not arguing that we should seek to make one of the cities dominant. That's not going to happen. It shouldn't happen. Um, we're trying to make some progress through the joint policy committee set up by the state government, but the joint policy committee has made strides. It consists of the four major regional agencies, um, but it does not have any direct power. We're going to have to figure out how to do this together by talking and working more closely together on a voluntary basis. Mm-hmm. Melanie Nutter, when Gavin Newsom was mayor of San Francisco, he often was very vocal, very visible, somewhat visionary on this issue mm-hmm. as uh, out front and drove lots of uh, progress and innovation. 
That's not happening under Mayor Lee, and there, there's no one quite like that, although Chuck Reed and, and San Jose might try to take that mantle uh, right now. But we don't have someone who's really banging this drum every day all the time. Is that fair? Well, I would say um, under Gavin Newsom, one of the efforts that he did work to start was coordinating city agencies around adaptation a couple of years ago. And what had happened was because this issue was so new, um, really the, uh, the coordination effort stopped and stalled around there not being an agreed upon risk scenario. Um, now, fast forward a couple of years later, and a number of city agencies ranging from the Municipal Transportation Agency to the port to the San Francisco airport um, all have started to do their own studies and really look at assets that are going to be threatened from sea level rise and other impacts from climate change. Um, so now there really is an opportunity and I think a political will among um, those working at that level to come together and restart this process. Um, as it relates to the current mayor and really current priorities and really where the opportunity is, um, as you know, Mayor Lee is very invested in our infrastructure and in seeing strong infrastructure investments in San Francisco. And having just been in Washington last week, that was also echoed at the federal level, is investments in infrastructure and thinking about that as a job creator um, is also really an opportunity for us to have the discussion around adaptation, even if we're not talking about climate change. We're really talking about shoring up our assets and ensuring that those are protected and resilient. So there is really an opportunity through the infrastructure priority that we have locally and federally right now. And that's a way to depoliticize it in some ways. Exactly. Because uh, climate is... Uh contentious, uh, polarizing issue in many parts of the country and, and even parts of the Bay Area. Ezra, let's ask you about the political leadership and whether we're seeing the right kind of your organization as association of political leaders. Is there really enough uh, drive and leadership happening on this issue right now? Or do members sort of think, well, I got some time. I may not be in office when this happens. So uh, I focus on something else. It's going to help me get reelected. Well, we're a voluntary association of the 101 cities and nine counties. Um, and I think almost all, <coughs> excuse me, all of our elected officials realize <coughs> that this is a regional problem. It can't be solved by any one city or one county. All of the infrastructure interconnects counties, it connects jurisdictions. So they're really looking for re- leadership at a higher level. And I think the region is the first line of defense in terms of trying to figure out how to state this problem and identify the targets that we need to attack. Um, but I, one of the conundrums about this problem is that the goalposts keep moving. Um, even if you get to 2050 or 2100, the problem doesn't end there. So you're continually looking at how do you phase more and more infrastructure in at a reasonable cost and what's your time period for making these investments. <clears throat> Not to mention that we don't have the financing vehicles to even think about how to do the investments. And you say there that the state's not really a player yet. Do you think that Sacramento needs to do more, but to, to give more authority, to give more dollars for the Bay Area to, to do the kind of planning and, and investing it needs to do? It's a local, regional, state, and federal government responsibility to figure out how to come up with a planning model that is efficient enough to begin thinking about engineering investments. Okay. No one wants to invest too much in advance of the problem, and no one wants to underplan. Uh, Sacramento is not the just getting its own fiscal house in order, and they've, they've been taking money from uh, regions rather than, than giving money back to them. Uh, so how's that going to play out in terms of Sacramento doesn't have much money to make these kinds of investments? 
Well, we've been in a financial crisis for, you know, most of my career here. And I think at some point you have to hit bottom and you start coming back. And I believe we're at that point. And so that's when more advanced planning can take place. And you see some significant initiatives in the Delta. Um, We have more attention from state agencies now for this problem than we ever had before. And the state legislature passed a sustainable community strategy, which I think in the context of looking at long-term development would incorporate these kinds of issues. So I don't think we're completely behind the eight ball. I think we have strong support from the state, and I think to some extent the national government. They are The Army Corps of Engineers is working in the South Bay, which is the most vulnerable area and the, probably the most uh, high, produ- most productive in terms of its economic impact. Um, and I think the concepts of combining environmentalism with with uh, levees and hard engineering is the right approach, and, and they're six years into it now. Zach Wasserman, let's ask you if you see uh, you're part of a, a, a state agency that's focused on, on a region. Do you see more funding coming from Sacramento <clears throat> uh, to address these issues? Um, I do not see a flood of funding coming. <laughs> but, but I do think that we're going to have tides flowing back and forth, and the governor has certainly made uh, addressing climate change, uh, both in terms of greenhouse gas emission, but also resiliency and adaption uh, to protect the built environment, one of his priorities. Uh, so I do think we're going to see some, some efforts. We're working with a set of regions, San Diego, Los Angeles, Sacramento, and the Bay Area, working very closely with the uh, governor's office and Office of Planning and Research. So they are engaged. Um, how quickly and how much funding we can get, I am not sure, but we'll get some. Do you agree with what Ezra said earlier about the idea that when times are good, I should really go for it because state budget cycles go through uh, good times and bad. And when times are good, uh, basically grab as much money as you can because it's, it won't last. He didn't say it quite like that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that's what he said. But, 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 but I think we need to have a, a, a more uh, sustained and careful and thoughtful effort at all of this. I mean, part of what BCDC is doing, along with others, the Joint Policy Committee and others, is really trying to do a longer-range campaign. Uh, I talk about it as a five- or ten-year campaign uh, to figure out what we need to do to protect our built environment, what we should do to the extent we can think about unintended consequences, uh, and third, how we're going to pay for it. And certainly getting more money when there is more money makes sense, but we've got to figure out how to do that on a sustained basis. On funding, you know, there's mitigation, which is sort of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, our contribution to the problem. And then there's adaptation, which is dealing with the consequences. On the global warming uh, stage, what San Francisco, in fact, even what California, the United States does, doesn't really, isn't going to really bend the curve. So why not just put all our money on adaptation, uh, which is what we can control, rather than trying to uh, cut our greenhouse gases, which isn't really going to affect the problem? I'm not so sure I agree that what happens in California doesn't affect the curve. You're right. Our portion of contribution to greenhouse gas is such that if we were 100% successful at reducing, it would not control the greenhouse gas problem. However, California is absolutely looked at as a leader in this issue. And I think what we do does have benefit in terms of being replicated and and, uh, and modeled uh, in other parts of the country and indeed the world. So. I don't think it's an either-or. We cannot deal with it as an either-or. We have to deal with it comprehensively. Melanie Nutter? I agree with Zach. I think it has to be um, a dual approach of continuing to focus on mitigation as well as having um, intelligent adaptation at the local level. 
And the city and county of San Francisco has had a climate program for about five years, and we really have been predominantly focused on mitigation measures um, that we really have seen make a huge impact. So right now, um, the climate program, as well as some actions that came before that, um, have helped us to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions in the city by 14.5 percent below 1990 levels, um, which is double the Kyoto Protocol and is, is significant when you look at what other U.S. cities have done. Um, so that is going to continue to be an area where Mayor Lee is certainly championing many of our um, green building measures. We know that in San Francisco, the built environment alone is responsible for 53% of our greenhouse gas emissions, and transportation itself is responsible for about 40%. Um, so we know that if we have strong policies and programs in those two areas, we can continue to um, to really reduce our carbon emissions and to mitigate. But we do know, both from the panel that we heard earlier, as well as from you know many of the science that's coming out, even if we stopped and were able to mitigate everything today, we cannot ward off every possible impact of climate change. So that's why cities now are waking up to say we do need to adapt as well. So we have to have a dual approach um, that continues to mitigate um, and not just accept the fact that we are um, emitting greenhouse gas emissions and adapting to make us more resilient. There's one other way that they're clearly related. California is a leader in the sort of um, carbon uh, cap and trade program. That's generating money. A lot of that money is going to go to mitigation measures. Some of that money can go to adaptation measures. Right. Uh, And there's also a premise here. Certainly one of the lessons from Sandy, Hurricane Sandy back east, was that the federal government uh, will be there to bail out the states. Is 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 the the barrier counting on Uncle Sam to bail us out if it gets really bad? (laughs) Well, that's the operating assumption, but I think most of us who are in the profession feel that that's a, a, a risky proposition and uh, that we're far better off thinking about how to mitigate damage rather than use the federal government as an insurance company where they're going to eventually get tired of bailing out coastal cities from these disasters. And FEMA's been bankrupt a couple of times already, right? So FEMA operates by annual appropriation. So when there's a disaster, there's an action by Congress that funds it. Um, and uh, the East Coast just got $60 billion for Sandy. What, what happens if we have an earthquake here where our damages are twice as much? Will we get that kind of appropriation? That's just a guess. Um, so we're far better off trying to figure out how to retrofit our built environment uh, before we need that money and then show uh, what we can do in a local match. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not so optimistic that the U.S. government can continue to fund uh, fixing areas just to see them in the same level of risk as they were before. And I think uh, you need a recovery plan that's going to demonstrate how that risk gets mitigated. And it was a big fight. New York and New Jersey almost didn't get that money. Mm-hmm. It was it, it was uh, really a tough fight back there, mm-hmm. even uh, with some very strong Republican members of Congress, and they're fighting for it. It almost almost didn't happen. So uh, let's talk about uh, other funding mechanisms for this. If, if the federal government's not going to be there, uh, are they going to at least invest in preventative measures so to uh, to make their future vulnerability less? So that they don't. So that if they do get asked for a handout, that they're going to be uh, uh, asked for a smaller handout. That would be the rational approach: is to fund hazard mitigation. Well, you just use Washington and rational in the same sentence. Yes, yeah. because we, <laughs> okay. if we if we do not take a rational approach to this problem, we are all facing really catastrophic impacts, and particularly the Bay Area because it is a coastal city. It's going to be facing sea level rise as a very serious problem, along with liquefaction and an earthquake. 
So we have a lot to take care of here. And if we're going to convince Washington that they should provide more hazard mitigation money to reduce the ultimate cost uh, in the long run, then I, that's, I think, a good strategy. The second part is to recognize that the Bay Area is a huge fiscal generator to the U.S. government and taxes, as well as to the state, and provides a lot of the innovative engineering that fuels our Defense Department, as well as many of our uh, other industrial processes. So losing the Golden Goose would be a, a gigantic loss uh, for the federal government and the state government, and we need some money for planning and hazard mitigation. And so where should that money be spent to protect this goose? Obviously, Silicon Valley is a big, as you said, jobs, uh, economic engine. Let's protect that goose. What should be done to protect that goose? Well, that's what the Army Corps of Engineers is working on with the many jurisdictions in the South Bay, is to look at a combination of strategies that, even in, even within the context of, of seismic risk, could protect the South Bay for the next 30, 50 years. Zach Wasserman, I've seen there's a BCDC map that has the headquarters of a lot of technology companies and the inundation zones with high, uh, rising sea level rise, and Oracle, Google, Apple, et cetera, all those iconic companies are at or uh, in the water. Yes. <laughs> so the, 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 what's the, the, going to be done about, you know, well, the, preventing that from happening? I imagine that can't be very good for business when the Oracle parking garage is underwater. It most certainly would not be. <laughs> um, at the moment, the most uh, specific and aggressive action is what Ezra talked about, the, the, the South Bay effort uh, with the uh, marshes and, and, and adaptive studies, and Senator Feinstein has been very helpful there. Um, the, the technology companies down there are starting to engage. Um, they are... I don't want to say they've had their head in the sand. Um, They're starting to engage. They do not yet have the sense of urgency uh, that I and others think they need. So they can move. Well, they're focused on quarterly earnings, first of all, and this is something that could be decades. And so even the CEO thinking I may not be around then. uh, But but can't they just move at some point? Uh, Cost of doing business? Well... The abstract answer is yes, but the more concrete answer is those technology companies are locating uh, in Silicon Valley and to some extent in San Francisco and to some extent in the East Bay because the human Mm -hmm. talent pool that is critical to their success is located there. Yeah, I I just meant kind of move up the hill towards 280, right away from 101. Well, sure, but, but moving the kind of facilities that they have is not easy. It makes much more sense for them to engage very heavily and utilize um, both their creativity as well as some of their capital in uh, working with um, the Army Corps, with NOAA, with BCDC, uh, in terms of developing uh, innovative, uh, natural, uh, sensitive uh, solutions and protections. As a rapper? The tech companies engaging, starting to realize, I mean, they very logical for them to say, Redwood City, you want us to stay? Pay to protect us. I think the assumption there is that we can't rely too much on the private sector to do the protection that government has traditionally provided. And the Coastal Conservancy in California, the Army Corps, BCDC, and a whole variety of other jurisdictions are hard at work uh, informing these companies what's happening but not relying on them to to be the the entity that pays for it. Ultimately, what the Army Corps will do once it finishes its report is ask for a federal appropriation for support, and then we'll see what other kind of matching funds are required to make it happen. 
So ultimately, this is going to cost us a lot of money, somebody a lot of money. I mean, I keep hearing federal state appropriation that this is going to cost a lot. Melanie Nutter, where is this money going to come from? Well, one other idea um, is an infrastructure bank, and this is something that uh-huh. there's a there's a green infrastructure bank um, Senate bill that was just introduced last month, um, and the details are really still being worked out. But some folks are looking at this idea of an infrastructure bank, either at the state and or federal level, as a way to engage private um, private entities and private industry in helping to support some of the adaptation measures. So although the details are still being worked out, this concept of having that kind of um, uh, infrastructure set up at the state and federal level could be an opportunity for financing. And so this is government money that would go in and try to sort of jumpstart this bank? And leveraged with private dollars as well. Okay. And so that, for example, could uh, help protect Silicon Valley or do other things like that? Potentially. Okay. Okay. This region has also been fairly um, uh, forward-thinking and generous in supporting regional taxes for infrastructure, Um, and that's not at some. You can't pile everything on that, but in terms of looking forward, um, we pay for the Bay Bridge, for example. Pay for the Bay Bridge, exactly. Um, And 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 the regional bonds that that were passed are paying for transportation infrastructure throughout the whole area. Um, so I think there is some hope if we can come up with sensible approaches and, uh, and, and the education campaign that demonstrates how necessary uh, these expenditures are going to be. So Save the Bay is an organization that wants to have a parcel tax around the Bay. I don't know if it's all nine counties. And the idea to basically pay for some bumpers around the Bay, wetlands, et cetera, is that a, a viable model where the Bay Area said, well, someone in San Francisco is going to say, well, yeah, I guess we all have to do this, and I'm going to pay to protect San Francisco and also Alameda, Richmond, and, and uh, San Mateo. I think it is a viable model, particularly in the sense as I said before, whatever we do, we need to think about unintended consequences. If you put a seawall up here, it may only divert the water to the other sides. That may not be the correct solution. We've got to think regionally about that. Whether the, the, the parcel tax that the Save the Bay is advocating at the moment is sensible, I'm not sure. I have a little bit of concern that we need it as part of a comprehensive plan that we don't have that yet. On the other hand, you've got a horse and cart problem and where you decide to move is always one of the toughest. Melanie Nutter? Um, so I would say also at the local level, um, we do have a capital pan- planning process, and there is a 10-year capital plan for the city and county of San Francisco um, where many of the dollars that are um, designated in that capital plan, millions of dollars, are specifically designated towards infrastructure. And it's really an opportunity to open up the discussion at the local level about um, through bond measures and un- other money that is raised locally, specifically through bonds to support capital infrastructure, how can we include any of the adaptation measures that come out of our local and regional work um, to fund in that way. So I think it's really, as um, I think Ezra said, it's about local, regional, state, and federal dollars coming um, to an area to really support um, resilient infrastructure. And one of the big ticket items is SFO So and, and Oakland. And uh, people look at SFO, and there was a huge fight to add uh, additional runways some years ago. seems like that. No one's talking about that these <laughs> days. Uh, and I've talked to some engineers who say, well, if you just build, you know, you build a seawall around SFO, you effectively shorten the runways. So how's, how's San Francisco going to protect SFO? 
So SFO, along with a number of other city agencies, are undergoing a number of studies and assessments to decide what to do. I wouldn't say that we have the answer in a number of cases. So, for instance, um, the Municipal Transportation Agency is um, doing an adaptation plan right now looking at our transit resources, our um, our transit stops, um, where all of our buses and our trains are stored, um, our underground railways. How are those going to um, be affected by sea level rise? So they're coming out with an adaptation plan in about six months, looking particularly at their resources. Um, the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission has really been a leader at the local level on looking at adaptation. About five years ago, they helped to start the um, Water Utility Climate Alliance, which is working with other water utilities around this, the country, looking at how sea level rise, temperature changes will impact our wastewater system as well as our water supply. So um, they're right now doing a continued assessment about what will need to be done. Um, same with SFO. So they're looking at different types of reinforcements of um, whether it's a berm or a seawall and where will that money come from and how does that affect the operations and the service of the airport. I think there's a lot of questions, but the good news is the work is being done. Um, the challenging news is where will that funding come from and what are the answers going to be to ensure that we can really address the impacts. Is it possible that San Francisco could ask its neighbors to foot the bill for something for a regional facility like SFO? That's certainly potential. <laughs> I mean, because the because obviously SFO does serve the region. Um, it is you know it's something that I'm sure SFO will look at if once we once we know what those solutions are, trying to figure out how to get those funded potentially in a regional way. As a report, let's get you in on uh, protecting Oakland and uh, San Francisco airports. Obviously, big drivers for the regional economy. Uh, they're at sea level. Uh, you know, the idea of already, I think, Oakland floods sometimes the runways. What's going to be done there? Well, <clears throat> I don't think anybody has a specific plan. Uh, you know, obviously, they need to elevate. I don't think they can build seawalls and, and fly over those. Um, but we'll have to wait and see, what, you know, what that cost is. That's the cost of aviation in the Bay Area if we get into this rising tides uh, and within a specific time period. And that's one reason why we can't just constantly think about adapting our way out of this. We, we really need to get a much stronger voice and statement about mitigating this problem. We need to slow it down. We're not ready for all of these impacts. There, there, there's too many to just enumerate here. But it's an extremely serious problem for the entire world. Um, we may not be the first ones to suffer catastrophically, but we, we are on the list because we're a coastal city. We're going to be facing these problems. And when something happens in New York or uh, another coastal community around uh, the world, how does the bureaucracies and agencies in, in the Bay Area respond to that? Do they say, well, that's them, they're over there? Is it, does, how, does it connect to, to the Bay Area, even though the facts might be different? It definitely connects. And most of the agencies have technical staff. And we see these connections and we see an opportunity, too, to advise the public and elected officials that certain steps need to get taken. And we, we do have a joint policy committee of the four largest regional agencies. We can add the water board to it. Uh, but ultimately, we have the resources, uh, the technical resources, to help figure out this problem. We need a, uh, some additional funding for dynamic engineering models and other kinds of scenarios that we're, we know are, would be very beneficial. But I think we have uh, the, the skills within these agencies to come forward with a, a set of, of plans that can phase in how we need to protect the Bay Area. Melanie Nutter, I mean, you worked for uh, Speaker Pelosi b before this current job. Uh, there's a, a political messaging challenge here, which is to go to people and say, more government, more spending, 
is the solution to this problem. How's that going to play out? Because that's not something politically very popular to go to voters and say, well, this thing that you may or may not believe in is happening and the solution is more government, more spending. You're absolutely right. It is a messaging problem. Um, again, being back in D.C., and we spoke with Senator Boxer, who said the two hot-button hot issues um, in the Senate, particularly as it relates to California, climate change and high-speed rail. Those were the two things that sort of get different members of different parties riled up and concerned. Um, but that's, again, going back to um, infrastructure. That was really seemed to be the solution to talk about what we're going to do to support those resources. Because it's true, something like climate change now does have a lot of baggage for, you know, people of either party who don't necessarily believe it. Um, but when you're talking about the practical day-to-day of how to support our communities, um, that's really the lens through which I think we can have that conversation. And again, it goes back also to mitigation and saying we can't just assume that we're going to go forward with business as usual because we know that that is going to be way too costly and that having mitigation measures in place is actually a less expensive way to go. And so we just need to, really need to talk about it through that lens, I think. So we're going to rename Climate One to Infrastructure One and have conversations <laughs> and not use that, that word. But there's a premise that, that the status quo is cost-free, but that's not really the case. There's tremendous costs in what we're, the way we're doing now, but it's only those incremental costs, Zach Wasserman, that people look at. They don't look at the, the costs of the way with, of business as usual. Um, you're right. Uh, one of the things I would do if I could is I would make everybody, every adult, every uh, student above uh, sixth grade, uh, look at the programs on Discovery Channel and Frozen Planet that shows what's happening with the ice sheets because... That's the kind of graphic, visceral message. And particularly when you understand that that will not stop even if we reduced greenhouse gases to zero tomorrow. That's the kind of push that I think we need to do, the education. Um, I don't think we can go out and talk to people today about supporting attacks for these infrastructure. I think we need to educate them about the real need educate them about what we may do as we think about it. Um, There are some boards here for the people in the audience on the um, designing for adapting to Rising Tides project that we did that, you know, brought some science fiction, very creative approaches, but some of those are going to have to be explored. When we get those with that education, then I think people will be ready to support this. One of those uh, sort of science fiction approaches is called Goldilocks, the idea of sort of putting uh, a big gate at the at the mouth of uh, San Francisco Bay, and can't we just big a big build a big wall that will protect us and everything will be okay? I happen to think that that ultimately might be the solution, but I do not think it's one that we're quite ready to adapt today. We don't have the engineering study, um, but that's the, the there's folding waters out there, which is essentially that kind of Goldilocks gate. Um, Does that just push the water somewhere else? I mean, it kind of pushes well, it, 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 it acts Absolutely. And when I talked earlier about unintended consequences, in addition to the deciding whether we can really engineer that kind of solution or there's another one out there for a net that would, would stop uh, surges, it wouldn't stop rising tide, uh, what the effect of that is on the rest of the coast when that water is, is pushed back or doesn't come up uh, all the way through into the bay and into the delta.
If you're just joining us, we're talking about sea level rise and adaptation in the San Francisco Bay Area. Our guests are Zach Wasserman, chair of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission. As a report, am I saying that right? Rapport. Uh I knew I wasn't saying it right. Pardon, um, pardon me. Executive Director of the Association of Bay Area Governments and Melanie Nutter, Director of the San Francisco Department of the Environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk about some specific communities that are being built, uh, former uh, military bases, many of them, Treasure Island, Hunter's Point, uh, Alameda. These are areas that the military has left after the Cold War. They're at sea level. We're about to put in a lot of capital, a lot of housing. Is it being done, Zach Wasserman, in a climate-smart way with sea level rise in mind? It will be. Um, We do not have plans before us yet for uh, any of those uh, projects where BCDC has jurisdiction, which is either because they're filling the bay to support something or 100 feet inland from the high tide line for purposes of public access. But realistically, uh, anybody who's going to build a new community, particularly a residential community, that is very close to the waterline is going to have to address those issues. It's a part of marketability. I mean, uh, there may be some doubts in some people's minds about whether the sea level is going to rise. There's enough certainty that it's going to rise in enough minds, even though we don't know the exact range, that to expect to be able to sell residential or commercial projects, for that matter, um, that, that are on the water, they're going to have to address that, not simply because the regulators, both at the regional level and the individual city level, will require it, um, but the market will require it. Uh, so I understand that the market will be uh, a factor there, but also the Bay Conservation and Development Commission tried to put some constraints on developer liability in the future. If, if uh, someone develops Treasure Island and t- 15 years from now Treasure Island is uh, un- underwater, what recourse would a buyer have? What responsibility would developers have if they built something in harm's way when there was a reasonable cause that, hey, they should have known? Well, now you ask me to put my hat on as a real estate lawyer as opposed to my hat as chair of BCDC. Um, But I think the answer is it depends on how well the disclosures are uh, developed, both by the the developer and their financing uh, sources and the title industry, um, as well as, to some extent, the regulators, more on the individual city and county jurisdictions uh, than at the regional level. Melanie Nutter, uh, San Francisco is putting billions of dollars in real estate in Mission Bay, which is right in the inundation zones. Our, uh, the new UCS hospital, was that built with uh, uh, sea level rise in mind? Is the power generator in the, in the basement? I'm not, I don't expect you to know that, but the idea <laughs> is you know, Mission Bay is, a, is potentially at risk, and we're just putting billions of dollars of uh, capital in there. I think that you have hit on the critical point that we're at for San Francisco. A lot of our high-priority areas, areas that either have been recently built or are slated next for large development, are our high-risk areas. So that really has brought home the point to um, city officials and our elected leaders that if we go forward in a piecemeal fashion, 
um, we could end up with a real problem on our hands of development that either um, took different risk scenarios into account and planned um, in a way that makes them more vulnerable um, without having a citywide policy strategy or plan to say, this is what we know could be the impacts in the future, so we have to plan now. Um, we don't want to do it in an incremental piecemeal fashion. Um, right now, uh, you know, a number of developers, it's left up to themselves right now to basically go out and do some of these studies and come up with um, risk scenarios that then, of course, are, are looked at by the permitting agencies. Um, but we do feel the responsibility as a city to make a, take a more a pro- a proactive approach to adaptation, especially in these um, high-priority, high-risk areas. So, Zach Wasserman, would you buy a waterfront condo in Mission Bay? <laughs> Depends on my investment timeline scenario. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? But it's basically buyer beware at this I, point. No, I think it is buyer beware. And, and, and I think it will have, and, and some people think it already has. I, I'm not sure there are statistics to support that. Uh, an effect on waterfront property values, which used to have a high premium, and I suspect today don't have as much of a premium. Um, on the other hand, most people uh, buying a house um, are, you know, not necessarily thinking uh, what's going to happen in 25 years. Uh, and so they may well be able, willing to pay uh, some premium for having that uh, uh, benefit of being proximate to the water, uh, recognizing that at some point it's going to go away. Melanie Nutter, how about the, uh, the Warriors Arena? How is that going to be uh, built into a fabric or a waterfront? Uh, are they taking sea level rise into account, bringing that, that uh, shiny new arena to the waterfront in San Francisco? So that is actually a question that we've gotten quite a bit of. That is a high-profile development um, right along the waterfront. And from my discussions with the, the Warrior Stadium um, representatives, they are taking that into account, looking at both shoring up the piers um, that are um, really in need of repair to be able to shore up that development, as well as having a setback. Um, so they are taking that into account. But the question is, is that development going to be operating under the same risk scenario and then adaptation measures as developments that are anywhere near it and along the waterfront. So whereas it is being taken into account, again, the question is what is the big picture strategy for the city and the other waterfront development? So it will go forward, but it, so there's still a lot to be determined there in terms of how that's going to be built into the, the city's waterfront. Exactly. Okay. It's, definitely on, it's definitely on their radar screen. I will tell you that. As a rapper, what are we learning from other cities around the, the world that have done similar things, San Diego, Vancouver, uh, that have done smart things? I want to get the others in here in terms of other uh, jurisdictions, other regions kind of wrestling with similar issues. Well, I think all the regions are really suffering from the same real estate problem, which is what's the residual value of the properties once the 30-year period of financing is over? And what can they say about what they'll do to protect properties within inundation zones? Um, so in the absence of an answer, since no one is providing significant infrastructure, it is buyer beware and seek higher elevations. Um, so if you have a major project and you're not thinking about those kinds of elevations, then you're essentially assuming that you can take all the economic value through the financing period. And this was a subject in New Orleans as well. Um, as you started looking at was there going to be coastal restoration to protect the city or were you going to be facing the same type of problem as it went along? Um, and, and there's no right answer to it. It, it has to do with uh, your perception of 
whether you think that the uh, uh, methods that the city uses or the region uses to protect this high-value infrastructure is going to succeed. And if not, then you'll get out of it at a time when you still make your money back. Melanie Nutter, who does San Francisco, what other uh, cities does San Francisco look to for ideas and inspiration when trying to wrestle with us? So there's really, really three North American cities that we've been looking at who are pretty far along on their adaptation planning. Um, New York City, ironically, is one of them. They actually have done quite a bit of work under Mayor Bloomberg's leadership um, putting together um, a plan where they really worked through the building codes and through the, the development process to integrate adaptation. Um, so that is a very forward-thinking effort. Um, also, Chicago put together a very good adaptation plan um, raised about a million dollars, both from foundation and other private sources, to put together a citywide plan. Um, and Vancouver has also done a lot, not only looking at infrastructure, but also resilient communities and neighborhoods and how some of these climate change impacts will affect people and health. And so Vancouver's done a lot of really good work there, too. So those you, are three cities. And right. you mentioned that health. That often gets overlooked in these sorts of things. It tends to be in uh, a very property-centric discussion. Uh, disease. There was, there was after uh, Sandy, there was talk of mold being a big problem. So, Melanie, let's talk about the health department and health consequences of a uh, climate-driven event or planning for mm-hmm. for health uh, uh, protection. So our Department of Public Health has just gotten a grant from uh, the Center for Disease Control to look at what some of the health impacts would be in our neighborhoods, um, looking at the impacts of climate change. Um, And so that study is currently underway. But we do know that some of the communities, particularly the Bayview neighborhood, is at risk both because of where it's located as well as because of its population. Um, We anticipate that when we have higher temperatures in San Francisco, um, one projection was that we could go from about 20 extreme heat days in San Francisco to somewhere around 94. Um, That's really going to disproportionately affect vulnerable populations, Um, seniors, young people, low income. Um, It worsens air quality, and so people who have respiratory issues um, definitely impacts asthma and other types of respiratory problems. And also the fact that we have a population that is not well acclimated to high heat. Um, So uh, one other thing I'll mention is um, 11% of our public housing in the Bay Area has air conditioning. So when you think of more heat more heat days in the Bay Area, we are simply not prepared um, to deal with that impact. And is it possible that we could even have cooling centers in San Francisco? Cooling centers where people go on hot days to shelter and place because they don't have it. I mean, is that something that you think about New York, Chicago having cooling centers, but Mm -hmm. San Francisco with cooling centers? And again, that could be one of the adaptation measures that we have to look at. If we're up to 94 um, heat days a year, um, we'll have to have those types of measures in place. Let's uh, bring the audience into the, the conversation. We're going to put the uh, microphone up here and invite your participation with a, a comment or question here for our guests uh, at um, at Climate One. Um, and while we while we do that, I just want to talk ask Alan, um, Melanie one more question about Ocean Beach. There's already plans to move the highway on Ocean Beach and actually so that it goes around the zoo. I mean, I'm trying to think of things that are more immediate and concrete that are happening very soon. Mm -hmm. Yes, so the Ocean Beach Master Plan, um, which a number of agencies and SPUR have been involved in, um, really have looked at the erosion that's currently happening on Ocean Beach and what needs to what needs to happen going forward. So those are the types of measures that are being put in place right now of reclo- relocating portions of the Great Highway and setting back elements of Ocean Beach. Um, that is something that is upon us right now. 
Let's have our audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Yes, uh, Jeff Potter again. Uh, one thing I haven't heard anything about is the fact that uh, the same impacts that the storm had on uh, New York City could very well happen here with a tsunami. And fl- that's flooded uh, BART, uh, airport flooding, uh, levees uh, smashed and destroyed. And so it's it's all part of sea level rise, just a different aspect of it. We haven't mentioned tsunamis yet, so let's, uh, Ezra Rappert. Uh, yes, uh, ABAG does do hazard mitigation for the region as a whole, and we're not at a terrible risk for tsunami because our earthquake faults are called slip faults, and faults that are subduction zones are the ones that cause the real tsunamis that they go on top of the prior fault, and then they create all this pressure to raise the uh, the tide. So Northern California has some tsunami risk up outside of the Bay Area because of the subduction faults up in the Pacific Northwest, but the Bay Area has has pretty little tsunami risk. But couldn't the tsunami be triggered at another fault far away? I remember uh, Santa Cruz was impacted at low tide by a tsunami that originated far away in the Pacific. Right. There's, there will be some potential residual tsunami effect from a subduction zone earthquake far away from the Bay Area. But it's still but a small risk. Yeah, it, it's nothing like the kinds of risk that you saw in, in other Japan. countries and other okay. around the world. Yeah. Zach Wasserman, anything to add? No. Okay. That's our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Yeah, hi, Dan Miller. Um, there was some discussion about 15 inches of sea level rise, if I got this right, by mid-century and maybe 50, 55 at the end. But like many things with climate, uh, it seems that things might happen a lot faster than mm-hmm. the early predictions. And uh, climate scientist James Hansen said that uh, he expects under business as usual that we'll see uh, 6 to 16 feet of sea level rise by the end of the century and as much as 3 feet by mid-century. How does that affect your plans, and do we get to a point where it's actually beyond adaption? Mm-hmm. And if so, then should, should maybe the Bay Area focus attention on moving Washington towards some mitigation efforts as well? Melanie mm-hmm. Nutter? Um, sure. So Department of the Environment is um, currently leading an effort to bring together all of our city agencies to really have a citywide adaptation plan. And the first item on our list is to really come up with a risk scenario that we will accept and use as a city. So exactly, the numbers that I cited were one study, but there are many different predictions um, around what, what could be our impacts. So that is really the first step, is in order for us to have a plan, we need to know what our baseline is and where we're starting from. And um, I suspect that we will be looking not only at the conservative numbers, but really kind of worst-case scenario, because as a city, we have to plan for worst-case scenario. And isn't it also a challenge that a lot of these models don't distinguish between California and Colorado? They don't give you regional policymakers information in a geographic scope that you need to make decisions for your areas of jurisdiction because there's a mismatch between the climate models, which are long periods of time, broad geographies, and you need to know something within uh, you know, much uh, narrower time and geographic zones. Zach Wasserman? Um, that is a problem. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the longest-standing tide measurement in the country uh, is at the mouth of the Bay Area, at the Golden Gate Bridge. So the, many of the broad projections are not necessarily true for us, and recently in the last 30 years, say, um, the rise here has been a little bit less 
than in New York for a whole range of complex scientific reasons um, beyond my ken, but, but I understand it's real. Um, nonetheless, we've got a lot of local data, a lot of local studies. However, the best studies, even localized, do have a great deal of uncertainty. The, the nature of nature um, and the limits of scientific information. So we do have to project between these ranges. And as, as planners, we get a little bit caught because we want to, to work for the most realistic change that we can get our hands around. Um, if we come choose only the worst, uh, we will engender a level of disbelief that I think will hurt what we're really trying to do. At a high cost. Millie, another? Um, one other thing that I'll add is I think it's, it's going to be critical for a city effort and for a regional effort to think about adaptive management and knowing that even when we do come to a risk scenario that we can all agree upon, we need to know that that is not going to be fixed in time for 20, 30, 40 years. The science will continue to evolve, so we need to set up processes at the local and regional level that will also continue to evolve where we can reevaluate our plans and our scenarios and be nimble um, as we continue to do this effort. So an example is the Bay Bridge, beautiful Bay Bridge, but now we got to raise or defend the on-ramp to that Bay Bridge because sea level rise as a rapid doesn't seem to have been taken into effect, into account when that was all seismic, wasn't sea level rise. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that entirely, but I, uh, I think some of the, the planning that gets done is how long will that effect last? How long do you think the approach to the bridge will be cut off. And so there are uh, examples where the kind of risk-benefit analysis says that the cost of the infrastructure to protect it is more ex- way more expensive than the inconvenience of not having access uh, to the facility or the facility being down. And that's, that's part of the issue here. I'm in, in, we're talking about flood control. A hundred years ago, the Bay Area flooded routinely, um, but even since 1950, we've had 26 flooding events. Um, This is different because the the risk is not static. It just continues to climb, and uh, it becomes very difficult to to settle on what's an appropriate infrastructure investment. Are you underfunding it, meaning that it's not going to be effective, or are you overfunding it, which means your investment is stranded for a substantial length of time? And it paralyzes uh, the process because we haven't faced this type of risk before. At some point, um, the uh, infrastructure can't handle the sea level rise, and you're going to be looking at a complete change in the way the Bay Area operates. Um, and uh, we are, what we're trying to advocate for is <clears throat> as strong a mitigation program as possible that can be sent as a message around the world with California as a demonstration project that we really can cut these emissions. Because people say even if we stop the emissions today or tomorrow, we still have this problem. But we're nowhere near stopping emissions. Mm -hmm. We're finding more and more sources of hydrocarbons that look like they're going to be very cost-effective to burn. And it's an extremely worrisome problem, I think, for uh, the the globe as as a whole. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Hi. Um, I am curious about <clears throat> how robust networks like C40 cities, <clears throat> ICLE, these, these groups of cities, all, all obviously facing similar challenges, uh, how robust those are and useful they are to San Francisco, and uh, are there opportunities there when cities act together to, to do maybe bigger things to confront mm-hmm. what obviously is a global problem? Mm-hmm. Melanie Nutter? Um, so... 
that is really an area of great hope and I think great progress. Um, those networks, there's a number of them. One is Green Cities California, which is a network of um, California sustainability directors. There's the USDN, which is the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, which is um, U.S. and Canada. And then there's C40, which is um, chaired by Mayor Bloomberg, where it's the um, largest 40 emitting um, cities around the globe who are all interested in doing climate work. So those networks um, in the past two to four years have been, I think, critical really to accelerating both the mitigation work as well as the adaptation work in cities because now we're in a situation where it isn't every sustainability director working with their mayor and their board of supervisors in a vacuum to create these solutions and to find policies and programs that work. Um, it's, there's a lot of cross-collaboration where um, there can be replication in from one city to another and have much more rapid progress. So um, I, I have been really thrilled and honored to participate in a number of those networks, and I think that there's a lot of opportunity for additional progress there by cities working together. And there's even a new exchange I heard about recently, people, uh, uh, counties sharing adaptation plans, mm-hmm. sort of sharing best practices using the web so people mm-hmm. don't have to do that sort of recreate it from scratch. Uh, yes, welcome to Climate One. Let's have our next uh, question. This is somewhat hypothetical because I don't think policy is anywhere near this type of thinking, but it is sort of a, a national defense issue. Is it possible that the funding that goes to national defense, maybe in the future, when climate awareness changes could be applied, that type of funding could be applied to adaptation or mitigation? Yes. <laughs> yes, it, 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 yeah. it, It's not quite on the, pardon the pun, front lines now, but there have been some discussions starting with national security and national defense um, that it is a part of, of their issue as well, and there may be funding available there. And the National Security Agency rated the risk to the Delta as the number one risk to the U.S. economy. Hmm. So it has registered at that level. Um, And I would expect that as time goes on and we see more catastrophic damage, probably in the East Coast where they're subject to storm surges, um, that we're going to have more and more dialogue about what is really important for the U.S. economy. Did you say the National Security Agency rated uh, the... Risk to the Delta as the biggest economic threat to the United States. That's yeah. really interesting. Yes, yeah. that's that's what I heard when I was in New Orleans. Hmm. The uh, I will say that I interviewed the Secretary of the Navy, uh, who talked about a warming world, and he actually said that they need more ships, more money for the Navy, and more ships to patrol uh, the warming Arctic because there's more uh, sea now for them to hmm. patrol up there. So they certainly don't see. Uh, a warming world as reducing their budgets. They see it as increasing their budgets. Uh, let's wrap up by asking you to sort of look into your crystal ball. We talked about some, a lot about risk management, et cetera. Uh, what's the Bay Area going to look like? How are we going to uh, respond to this? If we look 10 or 20 years out, Zach Wasserman, are we going to be in a fundamentally different Bay Area where we have a different relationship with the water that we love so much, jogging, living near the water? It's what brought us here. Are we going to have a different relationship? I don't think it'll be fundamentally different. I think in some areas it may certainly be different. Um, there are some paths along the, the dikes in the, in the delta that you're not going to be able to move on. So there will be some changes according to that. There may be new paths created because one of the things that we're trying to do and that the Save the Bay initiative is really aimed at is um, creating uh, uh, tidal marshes and others that can help mitigate against both surges and rising tide. That will take away some areas to get to the water, it will create new ones. So we're dealing with a changing bay. Um, we're close to the end of a new strategic plan for the BCDC. 
uh, that is very much looking at those issues. But I don't think it's going to, in, in a 10 to 20 year framework, I don't think it's going to be critically different. If you ask me for a 30 to 50 year framework, it might be. Melanie Nutter, a lot of tourists come to San Francisco for its charm, its waterfront. How do you think it's going to change in that couple of decades and then further out? Well, I think it's certainly going to impact um, our development areas. So, um, you know, the hope is that because we're starting now, that adaptation measures as well as mitigation measures will be integrated into um, our larger developments um, that will be coming online in the next 10, 20, 30 years. I think in the longer run, looking at the entire bay, one of the things that we didn't talk too much about today is wetlands restoration and really using our natural habitat as another adaptive measure. Because um, I think we do, you know, tend towards talking a lot about infra- infrastructure because there certainly is a lot of engineering that we could do to mitigate and adapt to these impacts. But I think in the long run, we will have a bay that both has infrastructure where needed, but also investments in things like wetlands re- restoration and additional natural areas that could help us to adapt. Um, so I think that that's something that we will see in the hopefully in the long term. One of the big recommendations coming out of uh, Hurricane Sandy in New York, New Jersey, was uh, the Army Corps of Engineers saying more wetlands, that, that sort of dollar for dollar, that's money well spent mm-hmm. uh, in all sorts of ecological uh, and, and asset protection, property protection ways is is those uh, wetland restoration. As a report, a uh, couple decades out, the Bay Area is going to be kind of the same or we're going to be very different? A couple of decades out, probably pretty much the same outside of the South Bay, which I think will be protected. Um, but you think the South Bay will see the most changes? or the most? I think the South Bay has an urgent need for protection. And I, I think uh, the people who are studying it are on the job, and there will be a federal appropriation to support protecting portions of the South Bay. Um, I think they are finding that the uh, bay restoration, uh, the wetland restoration, is an important mitigating factor to reduce the amount of engineering that's required for the sea, sea uh, wall. So, therefore, it's a it's a compatible uh, concept and makes sense in terms of the ultimate savings. Um, I would say from looking at that work that there's probably a 20-year lead time before any significant infrastructure can, can take place because of the complexity of the environmental studies that are required and the need for an overall scheme for the levels of, of protection on, and the time frames under which we're willing to accept these types of investments. So we have enough time, but we better better start now. Amen. Yes. Uh, and on that note, uh, we better end it there. Our guest today at Climate One have been Melody Nutter, Director of San Francisco Department of the Environment, Ezra Rappert, Executive Director of the Association of Bay Area Governments, and Zach Wasserman, Chair of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One today. Thank you. Thank you.